0: Anyway, we're going to continue in our study here through Luke. And we are in Luke chapter 18. Uh, We are doing a study through Luke, kind of uh, in-depth study that we've been in for some time. And as you go through the Gospels and you go from book to book, you realize that it leaves no stone unturned. There's some things that you see repeated often because we need to hear it often And there's things that the Lord is continually contending with in our lives. But if you please stand with me once again, I want to make sure you get your exercise today. Uh, In verse 9, we're going to pick up from our study last week. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, and a Pharisee, and another a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I pay tithes of all I get, bringing even the babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them, but Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. You may be seated. Last week, we kind of tied things a little bit together. We saw that at the end of chapter 17, that the discussion of Jesus's second return was in view as the Pharisees had asked Jesus when the kingdom was coming. And Jesus began to explain to his disciples from that point that indeed he will come again, and in that he's giving them a lot of information that he's gonna go away and that he's gonna come back Um, But he said, first, he must suffer many things, but he also told them that what it would be like in the time of his coming would be just like the days of Noah and just like the days of Lot, and that just as people were going on their own way in their sin, ignoring the ways of God, so it would be in that generation when Jesus returns, that it would be a time of chaos, a time of revelry and violence and injustice, sensual perversion, that people would go on living their lives as if there is no tomorrow, as if there will never be an accountability for the things that they're doing until ultimately he comes and then judgment comes. But to that end, we saw that Jesus gives the idea or the the concept is followed up in chapter 18 beginning in the first one where Jesus began to tell them a parable to show them that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. You know, Jesus spoke the parable we saw of the unjust judge and the pleading persistent widow which was really a highlight to the contrast of God and us who are his children. But he gives him the assurance that one day God will come, and, or Jesus will come, he will vindicate the faithful. He will vindicate in righteousness and in justice those who have trusted him and that you can count on it. But in essence, Jesus is saying by contrast that if a poor widow gets the, det- the, uh, the attention of a selfish judge who cares not about God nor about people, how much more will our Father, our God, you know, you know who, who loves us, who cares for us, not meet our need when we call out to him in need? That while we're waiting for his coming, that no matter what is going on in the world, that we would continue to be a people that pray, a people that watch, so that we will not faint, so that we stand firm, Jesus said in verse eight, he said, I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? That day of vindication for the faithful is going to come. Meanwhile, as we live in a world where we see injustice, where we see corruption, and we see confusion and deception and violence, we must continue to pray so that we don't faint but he is coming again. Rest assured, no matter what, one day justice is going to be meted out. No matter how much people think that somehow God is okay with everything, one day God is gonna show himself. Meanwhile, what we do, and we saw three, three things here, we are to pray persistently, we're to wait patiently, and we're to persevere in faith expectantly. And to that end, Jesus asked the question then, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And that really is the big question. That when he does come, will he find faith? And I wonder, how about you today? Is there faith in your life? You know, anytime you talk about end times or anything uh, eschatological, what you want to do is you want to make sure you're talking about readiness, You see, every time Jesus emphasizes either the time he comes for his church or the time that he's coming down to earth, it's always about people being ready for him when he comes. It's not about you knowing all the details and all the facts as to when and how and what. We can see the signs, but are you living in a state of readiness? Is your faith alive? Are you moving forward? And so now as we move on in our study, Jesus is gonna use another parable and which he's going to emphasize the justice of God as it relates to also his mercy toward those who are humble in heart. Here we see in verse 9, and he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So again, Jesus speaks here another parable, and it's directed to those who trust in themselves. And really, when he gives a parable, again, he's talking about a fictitious story which presents a spiritual truth. Something, an analogy that he says, this is something I want you to learn from, from seeing this particular picture, what you're supposed to see. And like the first parable, in fact, the only two parables that we have in the New Testament, the intent of it is given. As to why the parable is there and the value of the parable, it is to show Uh, those who trust in themselves and their own righteousness in contrast to those who don't. But it's dealing with the issue of self-righteousness. That is seeking to find your acceptance to God with a presentation of your own works and of your own goodness. And I personally believe that of all the sins that are abhorrent to God, that the sin of self-righteousness is perhaps the most grievous. It's the most seductive of all sins because you can be so involved in it and totally unaware of it. But once again, the parable highlights a self-righteousness using, as an example, a Pharisee. Now, I've said this many times that as you go through the gospel, you would do well to pay attention to these religious leaders that you see who are always in conflict with Jesus. Jesus. The ones that seem to work to get in his way and the very ones who are at this point plotting his death. But when you look at the parable, he begins to highlight the problem of these religious leaders. He says in verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I, I pay my tithes, I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was uneven, even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Again, Jesus uses this parable. He shows comparisons and contrast. By comparison, you notice that both of these men are Jews. They both make their way to the temple. They both come to the temple to pray, but there's a world of difference between them. And then one is referred to as a Pharisee and the other as a tax collector or a publican, as some of your translations may see. You see, by the time of Jesus... The ruling class of the Jews was made up of two very distinct peoples. One was the Pharisee and the other were the Sadducees. Now, the Jewish council that oversaw really the oversight of the Jews in Jerusalem there were made up of these two particular groups. But when you look at the Pharisees, the name Pharisee means separated ones. These are ones who set themselves apart from everyone else by either their education, or how they uh, pursued their own righteous works. They were by no means the majority, a small group of them, but we would call them fair you see, and I've given this to you before, but I wanna give it to you again, because I know that in repeating things at times, you begin to really understand and put it together, but they are fair you see. They are fair you see, because they have all the outward appearances of spirituality and piety, They were well-educated, well-devoted. They were legalists who zealously and rigidly clung to the letter of the law of Moses. So much so, they actually added new laws to emphasize obedience to the first laws. They kept adding laws. They held to the whole of Scripture They honored all the prophets, they believed in the supernatural, they believed in angels, they believed in promised hope of Messiah, they believed in the resurrection, the afterlife. Thus, when you look at them, you can say they're fair, you see. So they have this kind of appearance, but the problem is, is that they're extremely self-righteous. They're extremely religious. They were the conservatives of that day and they were legalistic in their understanding of the relationship with God, as if everything is about simply following the rules. Have you ever been around people like that? Just follow the rules, follow the rules, and as long as you follow the rules, you're gonna make it. On the other hand of the spectrum, you have the Sadducees, who were more of the liberal wing of that day. They, too, were religious, but they were sad, you see. They clung to the religious rituals and traditions of their heritage. They accepted only the first five books, the Torah, as scripture. They held to a looser and more liberal view of the scriptures. They denied the supernatural. They didn't believe in angels, and they didn't believe in the afterlife or the resurrection. Thus you could see they were sad you see. And so you have this two countries. These are the religious leaders, but the Sadducees were really the humanists of their day. You you have the conservatives over here. You have the Pharisees and over here. You have the liberals. You have the, the Sadducees, and they make up the body of the religious leaders or the ruling class at the time of Jesus. Now, normally, these two groups would be at odds with each other, much like we see in our Congress today. They're at each other's throats. But Jesus... Actually brings them together, in the sense that they both despise Jesus, because both groups, Sadducees and Pharisees, had this inflated sense of self-righteousness. They both saw themselves as a cut above everybody else spiritually, even though one was liberal and one was conservative. On the other hand, Jesus now presents the other person who is a tax collector. Now, we've addressed tax collectors many times, but I want to remind you that good teaching is repetition and time. You actually pick these things up and you go, oh, yes, I remember this. But often when they're mentioned, they're associated as a distinctive class among sinners. In fact, in Luke 5.30, it says, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's like you have sinners and then you have tax collectors. They have their own category. These are people that were were considered wicked. You see, to Orthodox Jews, being a tax collector had an even worse stigma than being a leper who had to beg at a distance. Tax collectors were moral lepers. They were often excommunicated from synagogues and even expelled from their own families. But they were considered to be traitors. Why? Because they worked under contract with Rome to collect taxes from their fellow Jews. And what were the Romans doing? Well, they were the ones occupying their land. So, in essence, what they're doing is they're collecting taxes to pay for Rome so that they can pay their rulers who occupy their land and rob them of their independence. So, in fact, you know, the Jews, you know, one of the greatest hopes about Messiah's coming is that someday he's going to overthrow the Romans and their occupation and he's going to bring back the glory of Jerusalem but here he is, he's a tax collector. And these guys were stationed everywhere, positioned. But to a Jew, they were sellouts. Most tax collectors were thought of as being sinful, corrupt, immoral, greedy, thieves, extortionists, who would often enrich themselves at the expense of others. We're going to see in a few weeks with Zacchaeus. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote that it was so uncommon to find one honest tax collector that when they did, they made a monument to him. So when you come back to the parable, we see here both the Pharisee and the publican, they've come to the temple to pray, but there's a contrast to their prayers. Again, listen to the Pharisee. God, I, thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. And I pay tithes of all that I get. This guy's got eye problems. There's a lot of eye in his life. And you see, in essence, that's what you get with self-righteousness. It's looking to yourself, it's looking to I. He is filled with pride. When he prays, he is thanking God, but only to the extent that he's not like other sinners. He's thanking God that he is so much better than others that he is that much greater and more worthy of God than that man over there. He honestly believes that he can come to God in his own merits, by his own works, and that God is gonna be impressed. Lucky God. (laughs) Do you ever think that way? Now, I have to shudder to think. There was actually a time in my life, way back in my beginning days, when I actually thought God was pretty lucky to have me. Man, has he taught me a lesson? Because the more I learn about him, man, the more I see who I am. But he feels that he's he's so impressive to God. Listen, I fast twice a week. Man, that's 104 times a year. You see, a Jew is required to fast only one day a year, and that was in the day of Yom Kippur. And he says, man, I've, I've done this. I, I've twice a week, man. I paid 10, a tithe on everything, 10%. No matter what it is, here it is. I think of Jesus and, and Luke 11. He says, but woe to you Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things which you should have done without neglecting the other. You know, in essence, fasting and tithing are good things. There's nothing wrong with the tithing and there's nothing wrong with the fasting. No, for him, it's become poison to his soul because now he foolishly believes that by doing these things, he has found merit before God as a righteous man. And his self-sufficiency and pride, he has no need for a savior. But the tax collector in verse 13, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven eating its breast. God, have mercy on me, the sinner. He's there to pray, but not with self-sufficiency. He stands at a distance, aware of his unworthiness. He has no pride. He's humbled. He can't even lift his face toward heaven. He can't lift his eyes to heaven he beats his, be- his breast in protest of the man that he knows that he is. And he cries out to God and said, God, be merciful to me. And he doesn't say, because I'm not a Pharisee. God, be merciful to me. I'm only human. God, be merciful to me. I'll try to do better next week. Or God, be merciful to me, you know, that I make mistakes. No, he comes without excuse and he owns up to who he is. He has an awareness not only of his sin and of his unworthiness, but in humility, he takes ownership of the fact that he knows he has offended God. And to that he pleads to God, have mercy on me. Notice this, the sinner, not a sinner, but the sinner. In his mind, that's how he sees himself. He is not concerned about the person next to him or the other people around him. All he sees is himself as the sinner. Now I've given you these descriptions before but they bear repeating that grace is God not giving us, or God giving us what we don't deserve and mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. And his plea here is, God, be merciful to me. And this word merciful, haliskamai, is, is a word that is unique. It's used only two times in the New Testament. But in essence, what he is asking for is not just mercy as we think of mercy, but he's asking for propitiation. Now, that's kind of a fancy term that you learn, but it's simply, as you go through, it means just appeasement. He's looking for to, for to be justified on the atonement and sacrifice of something else. God justify me. May you be appeased. Be merciful to me. And Hebrews 2, 17, therefore he had he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's the word that he's using here. In the fullness of the sense that he's talking, saying, God, be merciful to me through your atoning sacrifice because I am in need of atonement. I am in need of what you would offer me. In other words, he's not looking to himself. He is looking for God to meet a need that only God can meet. When you go back in the Old Testament and you see David after his sin with Bathsheba, some great psalms come out of that, but his heart is broken. He becomes aware of his need. He becomes aware of his sin, and it pleads to God. In Psalm 51.1, he says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression. You see what he's doing? He's coming to him for him. God, what you would do, your compassion... In Psalm 40, verse 11, you, O Lord, will not withhold your compassion from me, your loving kindness, and your truth will continually preserve me, for evils beyond ha- number have surrounded my, my iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head and my, my heart has failed me. He's overwhelmed with the sense, yes, I am a sinner but I am in desperate need of God's mercy. I'm in desperate need of God to do what he would do. So in light of the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, Jesus says this in verse 14, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus says here, it's the tax collector, not the Pharisee, who goes home justified before God. Now that word justified is a wonderful word that you see in the New Testament, but it simply comes down to this, just as if I never sinned. To be so justified with God from the work that God would do, and he's not justified because he's a tax collector or because he confesses a sinner, but because he's looking to God for his salvation. No, he comes home justified because he acknowledged his sin, and he's looking to God for the remedy for his sin. The Pharisee thinks he is not like other men, that he was better than them. The tax collector also knows that he's not like other men, but he thinks he's worse than them. And both the Pharisee and the tax collector, they stand in need of God's mercy and grace, but only one knows it and only one of them finds it. And then Jesus lays out the principle for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That we will never gain anything ever from coming to God in our pride and our own self-assurance, displaying this self-righteousness, thinks somehow we're gonna impress God. James 4 6 says, But he gives greater grace, therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In other words, if you want to put yourself on the wrong side of God, walk in your pride. On the other hand, God is looking for the humble of heart, just like he says in the Sermon on the Mount. God gives grace to the humble. And so we're led on to this next little story here and they were bringing even their babies to him so that that he would touch them and when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them saying, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. In that day, it was very common for Jewish parents to bring their small children to the rabbis, that they might bless them. And here in that tradition, we see them bringing the kids to Jesus, but it's very obvious that the little children loved Jesus. And that I can almost picture in my mind, no matter where Jesus went, they were always there kind of drawn to him. And that he was always open to them. But here when this begins to happen, the disciples begin to rebuke the parents and try to shoo them away. And the reason might be because they think Jesus has better things to do. That he has more important things to do. Now they certainly don't appreciate the value of children like Jesus does. And one thing for certain Jesus does, appreciate them. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. He loves them. But the disciples at this point they find themselves actually getting in the way of ministry rather than promoting ministry. Isn't that a horrible thing? And it's the disciples who stand in need of rebuke. Jesus says to them, no, you permit the children to come to me. Don't hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Not only do the parents desire Jesus, the children drawn to Jesus, but it shows us here that the disciples didn't understand some very important things themselves, how little they understood about Jesus, still after three years. How important Jesus saw all the children. See, in the Jewish culture, children were considered last on the chain of command. They were often seen as third-class citizens. Uh, They were to be seen, not to be heard, much like many in our day who view children as a mere nonsense, something to tolerate, an inconvenience, kind of an intrusion in your life. You go in the church and you look at the children's ministry and it's like, oh, somebody's got to do that job. Who's going to be with the little ones? Well, I don't know. we got to find somebody. But they were so extremely important to Jesus. Because there's things in little children that just Jesus was drawn to. And there's that little... Humility of heart that you can see that he just looked at. He completely understood the children. In fact, it was in the context of small children that Jesus warned that it would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and cast into the sea than to ever be guilty of abusing or leading a child astray. Jesus says, Permit the children. By the way, I just want to say this I, I am so grateful for the children's ministry here. Because I know this, we, we wanna love our children. When you think about where this world is going, there is no greater investment that we can make right now than to really sink into these children the heart and mind of Jesus while they're young. Because the world is going after them. And so I am so thankful for every servant of God who works with our children and ministers there. I'm just so grateful. But children have the quality of heart that God is looking for. Now, we all know that children are born sinners. It doesn't take them long to learn those two words, mine. You know, the word, mine, give me, and no, that, you know, the mine and no. It's like, no, mine, But the really thing precious about children, with my children, is their innocence. By and large, they're void of all those things that we kind of grow up to learn. The pride, the passion for for power, for our position. Anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom like a child will not enter at all, Jesus says, like a child, not being a child, but like one. Simple in your faith. Trusting, humble, honest, transparent. Children don't even have enough enough sense not to be transparent. Children can say some really horrible things and not even know it. They're dependent. A newborn child left alone dies. So completely dependent. Dependent. And they're obedient most of the time. But we raise them. They have to grow up to become arrogant. They have to grow up to become proud. They have to grow up to learn to be cynical and doubtful and fearful. They have to grow up to learn prejudice. They don't notice color when they're little kids. They just they grow up to be bitter, and to be resentful. And face it, that's the fascination we have with children, isn't it? Because we love to see things in them that we once remember, perhaps with ourselves, a time in our lives too when it was innocent. They remind us of the joys when we didn't have to worry about paying bills and we didn't have to worry about whether we are going to eat or whatever we were going to do. We just kind of trusted somehow, some way, parents were going to do it. Remember when I was a little kid, and I don't remember this real well, but our family was very poor. My dad was a pastor; they didn't make anything. We had four kids in our family, and uh, there was times where we had to eat butterscotch pudding alone by itself for weeks. One other time was great; we got to eat steak, and that was all we had for weeks. I never knew we were poor. I never worried about the next meal. As children, we just figured somehow, it's just gonna happen. And I've been in third world countries and I've seen children living in poverty but they don't even know it. They don't even know it. They're not complaining, they're not griping, they just figure somehow, some way, there's gonna be some means and, and, and our hearts go out to those kids who are struggling and, and starving around the world. But, but Jesus says, here, you gotta become childlike. Not childish, but come to a place where you're humble before God and you're willing to trust him and be dependent upon him for everything. But mostly and the most important issue in all your life is that you're looking to him for your salvation. That you're not trusting in yourself. That we can come to him in humility and simple faith and trust him and that we trust him rather than ourselves and our works to seek acceptance to him because of what Jesus has done for us. And this brings us back really to the issue of self-righteousness and the pride that is so detestable to God. You see, the Pharisee, he stood in his pride feeling great about himself only as he stood in comparison to someone else. And the problem is, is that he has a faulty measurement. He's using a wrong measurement to measure himself. It seems like somehow in our search for significance, the only way we can feel good about ourselves is often at the expense of others. I might be bad, but I'm way better than that person. I might be bad, but I'm not as bad. And we compare ourselves. In our ministry down at OSP, uh, Tim down there, you know, we meet guys and it's really amazing When they get the grace of God, it's wonderful. I've heard guys down at prison say, I'm so glad God brought me here, it's here where I learned all about him. But I've heard other guys that were pretty self-righteous. See, I'm a bad guy, I'm in prison, but I'm not as bad as that guy. I mean, there are good bad guys and bad bad guys. (laughs) And then there's bad 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 guys. So as long as I can find somebody who is Bad, badder than me, I can feel good about me. And this is the standard of measurement that the Pharisee is using for himself. He's, he's comparing himself to others. Next week in our study, we're going to hear Jesus say to the rich young ruler, There is no one good, not at all. Only God is good. That's the standard. There's none right, just not even one. We've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. Now, I grew up in a holiness church. And I'll tell you, holiness is a beautiful thing. And we know this, that God calls us to holiness. We need to talk a whole lot more about holiness as far as I'm concerned. Peter said in 1 Peter 1.15, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The problem that I saw when I was growing up in the zeal for holiness is that we began to define what holiness looked like by what we did or didn't do. You know, and as long as you didn't smoke, dance, drink, or chew and hang around those do, you're holy. But you had to, of course, add some other things onto not just what you don't do, but the things you do. You got to go to church and you got to make this. And as long as you check, 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 I'm holy, man. And I'm better than the other people. So when I see a guy out there who's smoking and drinking and all those things, man, God, I thank you, I'm not like them. Faulty measurement. The only standard of righteousness that God accepts is the standard of his own son who offered up his own life on the cross for our salvation. That's the standard of righteousness that God is looking for. And that only comes through faith. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you see the difference? We are right now in our culture living in a very self-righteous culture. Everybody's playing, I'm so much better than you. And it's not just the Christians. Man, this is the world. And self-righteousness is everywhere. People feeling good about themselves because they're not like them. No matter what the issue is, it's everywhere. But the question to everybody is, how do you measure up against the holiness of God? how do you measure up against Christ? And that is the most important question. And the thing that has plagued me all these years is Matthew 7, where Jesus gives these words. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say unto me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. These are people doing good things. That's scary. But it seems they come to the Lord on the basis of what they have done, they look to God. And the truth is, what the Word of God teaches us so completely is that we are so dependent upon His propitiation for our atonement that He made at Calvary. And God is looking for the humble heart. The humble heart. The one who comes and says, I got nothing, I have no excuse. And God, I'm desperate for you. All the excuses are gone because he alone is worthy. And the beautiful thing is this, the more you grow as a believer in the knowledge of who he is, the better you understand who you really are. And we grow up to become like children in faith. Did you know that? After all my years and all the teaching As I grow up, I'm still learning more now at this age to be more simple, to simply trust, to simply depend, to simply turn to Him like a child. And Jesus says, This is what God's looking for. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ's solid rock, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. In Revelation chapter five, it is the Lamb of God alone who is found worthy to open the scroll. And he is the only one who is worthy of our adoration and faith as we come to Him humility. See, humility is simply seeing things the way they really are in light of who God is and understanding our desperate need for Him. So where is your righteousness found today? When you thank God today, are you thanking Him for who you are? Or for who he is? Are you thinking about all the things you've done to stack up your brownie points? Are you thinking, oh God, you've been so merciful to me because I wouldn't have anything apart from you? That's the message this world needs. Humble yourselves like children, grow up to be like a child. Get rid of the complexity and come in simplicity and just trust the name of Jesus. Father, we thank you this morning. Thank you, Lord, for this time together in your word. And it's so humbling, God, because we do see things, Lord, in our lives, the pride that we hold on to so easily. And even God, the times we try to measure ourselves up to you by things that we do. Lord, I pray God that today, Lord, you would help us to root out all self-righteousness. And turn, Lord, to the only one who is able to truly make us righteous. Trusting in him alone and no other. We praise the name of Jesus. This morning as we're going to worship, if you need prayer this morning, we have people up here who would love to pray with you. It doesn't matter what it is. Maybe you just think, I, I just need somebody to hold my hand for a minute or just pray with me. Maybe it's a physical need, a spiritual need. It doesn't really matter. But step out in faith. Be like a child. And just today, trust the Lord. Let's all stand together.